2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. Sickle cell anemia is a painful, painful disease that disproportionately affects black people. Over the decades that it's been recognized by Western science, it has not received adequate funding to come up with new treatments. Patients often have very poor quality of life as they struggle with the pain that the blood disease inflicts. But a major collaboration between California academic institutions promises to use the revolutionary gene editing technology known as CRISPR to correct the genetic mutation that causes the disease. We'll talk with a patient and two doctors working on the treatment. And then we'll hear about the plight of outdoor workers who should be but often aren't protected by California labor laws. That's all next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Sickle cell disease is a red blood cell disorder that is debilitating, painful, and leads to other medical problems like infections and strokes. It is most prevalent among black people, and patients have struggled to access basic care. Later, we'll be joined by a sickle cell patient at UCSF who's getting a blood transfusion as we speak, But we're going to start today with two members of the team working on the new CRISPR trial. Marsha Treadwell is a psychologist at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, who also directs the Sickle Cell Care Coordination Initiative in Northern California. Welcome, Dr. Treadwell. Thank you. And Mark Walters is a professor of pediatrics at UCSF and lead scientist on the Sickle Cell Trial. Welcome, Dr. Walters. Thanks very much. Dr. Walters, let's first just talk a little bit about sickle cell anemia. Can you tell us a bit more about the sort of prevalence and symptoms of the disease?
0: Yes, it's a hereditary disorder, which means that a person who inherits the disorder has it lifelong. And before birth, the symptoms and signs of sickle cell disease are masked by the fetal hemoglobin, which is a form of hemoglobin that's made before the birth of any baby. Mm-hmm. So for this reason, it cannot be identified at birth based on signs and symptoms or even a, a, a regular blood count at birth. So we rely on newborn screening to detect individuals, babies who've inherited the disease so that we can institute regular care. With regular care, most children will survive to adulthood. but But the sad story is that even today with with a broader array of supportive measures, supportive treatments that might lessen the severity of the disease, the median survival is still, that is half of the patients who inherited the disease will die in their late forties and early fifties, which which is a 30 year decrement in lifespan. And the reason for that is that there's progressive damage to virtually every organ in the body. Pain is the hallmark of the disease, which is caused by the fact that the, the sickle hemoglobin, this is the inherited dysfunctional version misshapen
2: of misshapen red blood cells yeah
0: exactly and it blocks blood flow and when there's an absence of blood flow and oxygen that causes pain in locations like muscle and bone got
2: it you know dr treadwell you direct an initiative to improve care and and the quality of life for people with sickle cell historically have sickle cell anemia patients gotten the treatment that they need
3: absolutely not Sickle cell disease is characterized by pervasive and longstanding uh, disparities in health resources as well as health outcomes. So as Dr. Walters mentioned, uh, a health outcome disparity is the decreased life expectancy. Another health outcome disparity is that patients um, have the highest readmission rate to the hospital um, and uh, multiple complications. They haven't, people haven't gotten the care that they need because of health resource disparities where many of the patients are on Medicaid, which isn't accepted mm-hmm. by all uh, providers. They have longer wait times in the emergency department um, because of misconceptions that they are drug seekers mm-hmm. and doubts about the severity of their pain. And particularly for adults, there is um, a very limited, uh, supply of physicians who can care for adult patients who are knowledgeable Mm -hmm. and really want to care for patients with sickle cell disease. Yeah.
2: So obviously, we hope that this trial or something else actually leads to a cure. But in the meantime, what needs to change in sickle cell care just sort of generally assuming that, you know, we're still some ways away from a, a cure?
3: There really needs to be an improvement in recognition of the need for improved quality of life for people with sickle cell disease, again, particularly for adults. So providers need to um, look at their implicit biases that do come into play when they take care of people who are primarily African-American. And again, that lead to these ideas that the patients are uh, not as in severe pain as they say or are drug-seeking also, we really do need more, uh, not just caring providers, but knowledgeable providers. So there need to be providers who want to commit to learning more about the disease and providing the best standards of care. Now, what we've been able to do here in California is uh, work together in a partnership with a community. So people with sickle cell disease, community-based organizations, researchers, clinicians have all gotten together created a California Sickle Cell Action Plan, and in fact, secured funding uh, through the governor's budget to begin to train more adult providers, increase access to care for adults with sickle cell disease, and really implement these standard of care guidelines that will improve quality of life.
2: Yeah. You know, I just wanted to think about the intersection between the opioid epidemic uh, and sickle cell and I'm guessing that because we actually do have people who are seeking drugs because of this epidemic uh, in opioid use, and it has made life harder for sickle cell patients to get the actual medications that they need.
3: That is, that is absolutely the case. But what CDC did in response to uh, people with sickle cell disease having more trouble, even more trouble than historically in accessing uh, opioids, was to put forward a statement that Individuals with sickle cell disease are not more likely to uh, they are not at increased risk of addiction to opioids. In fact, they published data that showed that people with sickle cell disease do not have a higher rate of uh, addiction to opioids compared to all other uh, non-cancer pain conditions.
2: Yeah, Um, Dr. Walters, if you have a patient with sickle cell from a very young age, What are the kinds of treatments that you can deploy to sort of keep the disease from causing this deterioration in their bodies while also, you know, you know, they're going to be taking these things for a long time. And so that itself can cause problems.
0: Right. There's a there's a dual edged approach. The first is preventive care. So it's educating families about common complications, like a risk of certain kinds of infection, Um, what to do to keep a patient at uh, a good temperature to avoid temperature extremes that might cause a, a sickling event and 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 just general guidance about how how to how to take care of uh, children as they transition from adolescence to, into into adulthood the second part that that has really changed the practice is the early institution of disease modifying therapies so So of interest, for for many, many years, there was only one FDA-approved therapy, a drug called hydroxyurea. And it's an important therapy because it lessens the amount of pain that's experienced and it reduces the time spent in hospital. And also, uh, if taken properly for for many, many years, extends lifespan. Mm -hmm. So now we try to institute that drug very early. And that's actually
2: addressing the, the disease itself, not just the sort of symptoms of the disease.
0: Yes, that's right. So uh, more recently, there have been three new FDA approved drugs that are also being instituted in ways that improve uh, the spectrum of symptoms and potentially lifespan.
2: Um, I want to talk a little bit about the new work now um, using CRISPR as a gene editing tool to perhaps cure sickle cell. Uh, For those who haven't been following the biotechnology news, can you just give us a little little background on how CRISPR could be, is used and might be used in this case?
0: Sure. Well, the the CRISPR gene editing tools uh, are are composed of two basic components, and and a third that we've added to elicit a change in in the DNA sequence that that causes sickle cell disease. Uh, It it involves um, joining a a protein, an enzyme that cuts the DNA into two pieces, and the cell very quickly wants to repair that cut um, so that it can continue the cell cycle. The second part is a is what we call an, uh, an RNA, a guide RNA, that's that's like the spell checker that brings that cutting enzyme into close proximity to the mutation that we want to correct. And the third component is, a, is an extra piece of DNA that has the corrected sequence. So it becomes the template that then uh, lays down a new strand of DNA that, that, that doesn't have the sickle mutation. And after completion of this, assuming that the cell survives all these these perturbations, which most of the time it does, it now is a stem cell that will produce blood cells in the circulation that won't have sickle hemoglobin. It'll have mm-hmm. it'll have regular, healthy hemoglobin.
2: So you'll take the bone marrow out from patients. You'll apply this CRISPR fix, this knock in of a of a working, a functional copy of the the gene, and then you'll put it back into patients. That's right. That's kind of the, the core operation.
0: That's that's correct. And, and but each of those procedures is is arduous and, and require, requires time spent in hospital and in the clinic. So, so um, while, while this has the potential to be a universal treatment uh, cure, if you will, we're, we're, we're a long distance from that because uh, there are several important improvements that must occur. Yeah.
2: Dr. Treadwell, um, have there been other potential cures or you know treatments that would radically improve life that haven't worked out? And if so, how do you work with families to underst- help them understand how to calibrate their hope?
3: Well, Dr. Walter's work over the years um, has really refined uh, the approach in terms of uh, bone marrow transplantation, which would be transplantation from uh, a donor. And the issues with that are that many individuals do not have a matched donor. So they simply aren't eligible for that treatment. The other issue is that as similar to uh, the uh, gene therapy, there is a time in hospital and there is um, a, a risk that patients uh, accept as they go undergo uh, the therapies to be able to obtain the bone marrow transplantation. So, what we do is really um, uh, the process of informed consent for such a process is, is long and uh, a real back and forth dialogue Mm -hmm. to understand, you know, what is the risk for me and my family um, now and for the future. Um, And just, you know, a a conversation, it it really requires trust between Mm -hmm. the, the physician and the patient as they, uh, go through this dialogue and so your question about you know how do we help people who uh, are facing a hard decision and then further who who may have aren't it's not aren't eligible for it
4: mm-hmm. um,
3: and and really we really work with people to understand that there are things they can do to improve their quality of life in the meantime while they're awaiting a, a mm-hmm. cure or uh, it's important for them to maintain their health mm-hmm. so that um, when a cure is more widely available, they will be eligible for it and can benefit from it and not have so much organ damage.
2: We're talking about a new sickle cell trial at UCSF. Joining us are Marcia Treadwell, psychologist at UCSF Benioff Children's Hospital, and Mark Walters, professor of pediatrics at UCSF. What are your questions about sickle cell disease or about the new trial? Give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch in all the other ways, to forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. welcome back to forum i'm alexis madrigal we're learning about sickle cell disease why it's only now gaining much needed research attention and a new gene editing trial in the works with the potential to cure the disease we're joined by marcia treadwell a psychologist at ucsf benioff children's hospital who also directs the sickle cell care coordination initiative here in northern california mark walters professor of pediatrics at ucsf who's also lead scientist on the sickle cell trial And we now are joined by Brooklyn Haynes. She's a 26-year-old sickle cell patient at UCSF since she was two months old. Welcome to the show, Brooklyn.
1: Hey, good morning. How are you guys?
2: (laughs) Good, good. Are you feeling okay? I know you're joining us like from a procedure right now. Everything okay there?
1: I'm literally in the middle of getting a blood exchange as we speak right now. So I'm doing okay this morning, but we're doing, we're moving.
2: Yeah. What does that do for you to get that blood exchange?
1: The blood exchange, basically, they take out my sickle cell blood, and they give me about three to four units of non-sickle cell blood. So it kind of helps eliminate all the pain that I go through on a daily basis. But it only does so much.
2: Mm-hmm. And how long does that like, make you feel better for?
1: Honestly, probably about like, two weeks.
2: mm Wow. So can you tell us just, you know, what's it feel like? Like, I've tried to imagine reading about it, and I watched a great video of you talking about it. What does it feel like (laughs) inside your body when you start to feel one of these pain episodes coming on?
1: Like, literally, I feel really weak because my hemoglobin starts to drop causes my blood to pull up even more really badly. So I feel literally, like, my bones are breaking, like, almost like I have, like, a rusty saw sawing in my bones and, like, a hammer hitting it, and it's, like, it Mm. just won't stop, and it's a pain that you just want to stop, but it just won't. It's it's in your blood. You can literally feel, like, the sickle flowing through your blood. It's painful. I can't walk. It's hard to get out of bed. It's, It's really bad. At one point, I had to, like, teach myself how to walk all over again, like, some years ago, so...
2: Oh, my God. It's because you hadn't, you hadn't been able to move for a while? or like how, I how hadn't been you? able
1: to move, and the pain, it's just like you're not able to really use your joints like that. The sizzling for me, mostly happens in my back and my legs, and it's just really hard to walk because the pain is just so bad. It's like bone-breaking, constant, throbbing pain. Oh, man.
2: And has it been, it's been that way through your whole life. So when you were, like, five years old, you can remember that, and, like, you know, up to now.
1: Yes, when I was five years old, I had my first recollection of a pain crisis. Um, elevation also is a trigger for sickle cell. And I was sleeping in the back seat of the car, and I just really remember waking up screaming and crying and wondering like, why my body is attacking me at five years old. It was really scary. Oh,
2: man. I mean, how is it affected? You know, you're, you're only 26. I mean, how has this affected just, you know, doing the normal stuff of life, you know, getting a job, going out into the world?
1: Um, At first, when you're 18 and you go out into the field, you think it's going to be all roses and daisies. But as soon as you get fired for missing so many days of work, reality kind of sets in. And it's just like, OK, this disease is taking a toll on not just my body, but my social life as well, my working life. I haven't been able to work a job in more than four years. Mm. So definitely struggling financially for me is definitely, it's taken a toll now since it's the holidays. Mm. I'm not able to get anything for my family that I want like everybody else can. So it's definitely taken a toll on my body and my finances.
2: Yeah. What's your care been like? Like, Do you feel like you've had the, the care that you needed or that that, that, that could make it as good as it could be.
1: Oh, at UCSF, I, I love it over there. When I was a kid, going to the hospital for me was a problem. But then also it was like, Oh, I get to see all my nurses and doctors. I'm so excited, go to the playroom. But then as I've become an adult, it's been very challenging. I'm looked at as more of a drug seeker now. I'm looked at as more as why I here so frequently. I'm looked at, it, it, it's mm-hmm. not a pleasant, I've, I have patients, well not I don't have patients, I have friends that have sickle cell and that literally have a little bit of PTSD given from the ER doctors, like they're crying and shaking just at the thought of going to the ER, not every oh, sickle man. cell patient is strong and right. able to literally go through all that adversity and look at differently, yeah. and some of them can't take it, and they break they really break in half. You have to learn how to be strong when not everybody can be strong.
2: Oh man, so, I mean, when you go in, doctor takes a look, or the nurse takes a look at your chart, they see you have sickle cell anemia just like they would see your friends, and yet they're still treat you like you're seeking drugs?
1: Yes. Yeah, gosh. Constantly, they do, constantly. It's also, it's an issue. They don't even really look at my chart. Literally two days ago, I went to the ED, and the doctor did not want to follow my pain plan. And then finally, my labs come back, and they come in the room, and it's like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't believe that you were in pain. And now it, it's it's just yes, yeah, it's horrible. They're like, oh, you're here for pain meds. I'm like, no, I'm here for you to help me get out of pain so I can go home.
2: Mm-hmm. What about this new trial? Is this something that you're interested in and and would like to try to, you know, seek a more permanent cure?
1: Definitely. When they first introduced the CRISPR gene therapy to me and kind of broke it down, I was really excited. I was like, this is overdue. I'm excited. Sign me up. I'm ready for it. But then it's also a little bit nerve-wracking because it's like, like I told my grandmother, like imagine being healthy for all of these years and then you end up getting like cancer or something and then it's like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. And I told her it's almost like sickle cell has become a part of my identity for all of these years. Mm -hmm. Like at this point, this is all that I know. And I'm excited for the cure, but then it's also like, I'm not going to be able to see like Dr. Treadwell or... (laughs) You know, like my
2: nurses and doctors that I've grown up, they are a vital part of my life. Yeah. You know, Brooklyn, we're gonna let you uh uh let you go. You can maybe you can hang around in case people have uh questions for you. Um, but I know that you're okay. you are in the middle of a procedure. So thank you so much for joining us, kinda of sharing this experience and um I, man, breaking my heart just hearing how, how hard it is. I, it's just it sounds really, really, really hard. Thank you. Well, thank you for listening. That means like so much to me. Yeah. Dr. Treadwell, um, Brooklyn shouted you out as someone who'd been a, a key part of her of her treatment, and I just as you were listening to her talk and describe those challenges. I mean, these are things that that you're hearing every day from families.
3: Absolutely, and uh, Brooklyn really put it so well you know, it's traumatic. It's traumatic to experience pain from such an early age, um, often without warning. I mean, people can control uh, their triggers sometimes, but sometimes it just happens. And then it's also traumatic to to come to the hospital. And that's an area that's not really recognized sometimes by providers that, uh, again, I appreciate Brooklyn talking about resilience. People with sickle cell disease go through so much, but they have demonstrated such resilience. They deserve so much respect. And yet, um, you know, they, this, this uh, societal view, uh, you know, where you couple uh, structural racism, interpersonal racism, and the fact that the disease primarily affects in this country African Americans, just really uh, is brings together all these factors that lead to this negative experience, and it is heartbreaking. Uh, but uh, I just appreciate that. Having worked with Brooklyn since she was a, uh, a baby um, and others, the resilience and and they people deserve more respect than they really get in the medical setting.
2: Hey man, you just got to I mean, I'm just asking myself, like, why are we asking people who feel like their bones are breaking on the inside to be the strong ones? Like, right. Isn't that what our society is supposed to do is to help people who need who need help who are in that kind of situation. Um, let's bring in Michael from San Leandro. Welcome to the show, Michael. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, I'd like the experts to weigh in on the need for now until we get these treatments uh, more available and equitable, uh, the CRISPR technology in particular, about the need to recruit uh, non-white blood donors. Mm. Dr. Walters, what do you think? Is, uh, is that one of the key needs here in the Bay Area?
0: Well, it, it, it is, uh, but it's a, it's a sensitive issue. So absolutely. The um, the matching of the red blood cell type, not just the major ABO that we're all familiar with, but there's an extended uh, panel of proteins on the surface of a red blood cell that are important to match. Because if a if a person with sickle cell disease who needs regular transfusions develops an immune response against those proteins on the surface, may make it very hard to give them transfusions when they need them. So as it turns out, that those what we call minor antigens they're they're inherited. Um, uh, similarly among ethnic groups. So, so getting broad participation, not just in blood donations, but also stem cell donations like mm. the national marrow donor program is, is very important to expanding access to, 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 care. That's very important to deliver. Yeah.
2: Dr. Treadwell, is that something that you work with the community through the sickle cell care coordination initiatives to try and sort of build up that, uh, that base of people who can be prospective donors?
3: Absolutely. We really have some excellent community-based organization uh, partners in the Bay Area. So we have SC-101, uh, Executive Director Cassandra Trumnell, uh, the Sickle Cell Anemia Awareness Foundation of San Francisco, uh, Executive Director Nadina Brox-Kapla, and then the Sickle Cell Care Coordination, excuse me, Sickle Cell Community Advisory Council, uh, and Wanda Williams is the chair of that. So they do um, put out calls for blood donations, and particularly uh, the program in San Francisco, they uh, will offer blood drives and just encourage the community to come together. And that, that's the real key, is raising awareness in the community of um, the need for blood donations, just again, in general, but also that it really does show people with sickle cell disease that the community cares and is supportive. Sickle cell is a hidden disease, you can't look at someone and know that they have sickle cell disease. So these awareness um, events really help people with sickle cell disease to feel that they are cared for and and that there are those who know about what they're going through and are going to do something about it
2: yeah you know to that point we have a few uh questions uh comments from listeners that are about um uh you know basic questions uh about sickle cell uh sean writes and and maybe Dr. Uh, Walters will go to you on this. Sean writes, "It seems so prevalent in our population that I wonder where, whether there's some evolutionary purpose to the sickle cell mutation." As I understand it, it's it's around malaria, right?
0: That's right. And um, for reasons that aren't even today completely understood, there's something about having the trait condition that enables a person who's infected with malaria to clear the infection faster. In you know, in the, in the absence of anti-malarial drugs, so even even today in in areas of the world where Malaria is endemic. There's still a, a, it exerts uh, having the trait exerts a strong um, uh, natural history um, mm-hmm. on, on on keeping the, the the mutation this this allele in the population. Yeah.
2: Uh, Michael tweets a co-worker had it she desperately wanted to have a child and picked a father with neither black nor Mediterranean ancestry to make sure she didn't pass it on her beautiful older sister had passed away while she was still in her 20s she herself lived into her 50s uh, question there um, dr. Waltz, is just about um, how this uh, disease has passed and and you know the hereditary conditions there um, as Michael was indicating
0: Right. Well, so it's a it's a recessive uh, trait. So having at least one copy of a of a healthy gene protects you from largely protects you from the disease. So uh, for any two parents who carry the trait, there's a one in four likelihood that one one of the children will develop sickle cell anemia, which is having two copies of the of the sickle trait. So um, so right, if if a person has sickle cell disease and has a baby, they will pass on to half of their children, assuming the partner doesn't have trait or the disease, will pass on that gene to half of the the children.
2: Are there genetic tests available, like there are for like the BRCA, uh, which predisposes people to breast cancer?
0: Yes, these are readily available. So you can can test the type of hemoglobin that's in the circulation, and and that will give you a pretty good idea of whether or not a person has trait or disease. But it's also possible now to, to, to do the DNA sequence test and confirm. Um, by genotyping what, what the, what the genotype is.
2: One more caller, David from San Francisco. Welcome to the show.
4: Oh yeah. Morning. Um,
0: Years ago, uh, the medical schools uh, would admit uh, people that were interested in certain specialties. And um, as I understand it in corporate medicine nowadays, they're becoming orphan uh, orphan diseases where the med schools aren't really admitting enough students uh, to deal with certain certain types of diseases. And so there are fewer specialists to go around. And uh, I, I'm just wondering if sickle cell, I heard somebody comment about white people curing uh, people for a black disease. Are the medical schools intentionally not admitting enough doctors? Because I remember this issue showed up 40 years ago in the early 1980s yeah. uh, about whether the med schools were admitting enough doctors interested in sickle cell. Yeah. Uh,
2: so, Mark Walters, are there enough doctors who are being trained um, and going into these blood disorders uh, like sickle cell?
0: Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And, and probably not. I, I think that um and this is, an, this is an ongoing challenge for for medical schools and for academic medical centers in general, where there's a disparity in, in representation. That is, the, the ethnic and racial makeup of the faculty doesn't match the makeup of the uh, of the population at large. So there's this. Uh, so underrepresented in medicine is a is a term that we use a lot, and it's something that we're trying to tackle. Now, at, at Children's Hospital Oakland, where, where I work, there's uh, we pay a lot of attention. To, to this and and we ensure that the proper representation is available at all levels um, from leadership on on down so that's that's really an important process of of improvement that each each medical center each medical school needs 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 to consider and implement with regard to the shortage of physicians um, it, it is a problem and, and, and there are a lot of important reasons why I think um, because these are rare disorders. And the discipline that where, where I have training that includes oncology is cancer is a much more common problem. And so for economic reasons, there's been this shift toward uh, the oncology aspect of hematology, oncology training, and, and less to hematology. So this is another challenge that that needs to be taken up. Yeah. Dr. Treadwell, um, just in our last minute here, what's for
2: people who are listening who've been moved to want to help in some way, what's the best way for, for people to contribute to the care of, of people with sickle cell?
3: That is a really an excellent question. I, I think that uh, maintaining awareness uh, of the disease is really important and, um, you know, contributing... Donating to uh, our program here at uh, Benioff Children's Hospital in Oakland, our comprehensive sickle cell center that's been here for over 40 years, but also the community based organizations that I mentioned, so there's both a need for um, uh, philanthropy. I think a statistic I didn't mention earlier is that uh, if you compare like cystic fibrosis that primarily affects white people and sickle cell disease that primarily affects black people, there's um, like a 27-fold, if not more, uh, disparity in funding available both from NIH as well as from philanthropy. So, so, so donate. Donate to the um, community-based organizations, to the uh, Comprehensive Sickle Cell Center uh, in Oakland, but also just show that you care. Yeah. Show people yeah. with sickle cell disease that you care.
2: We've been learning about sickle cell disease with Marcia Treadwell, a psychologist at UCSF. Mark Walters, a professor of pediatrics at UCSF and lead scientist on a new sickle cell trial. And we spoke earlier with Brooklyn Haynes, a 26-year-old sickle cell patient. Thank you so much to all three of you. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break.
4: This is Barbara Leslie, president of the Oakland Port Commission. Oakland International Airport, OAK, is proud to bring you this podcast of KQED's Forum. When you're choosing your next adventure, the smart and convenient choice is to fly the East Bay Way from OAK to destinations across the USA and Mexico. And when you return home, tune in to KQED
2: Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, and I hope you'll join me on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Every Thursday, I'm getting the inside take from the best reporters in the country,